0: Hey Educators, what's the Scoop?
1: Are you ready to be inspired by great things happening in rural Arizona classrooms? The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas, an innovative curriculum, we'll dive into current school issues, and we'll highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of teachers, administrators, and educational professionals who will provide relevant and engaging content each episode. And now, serving up the Rural Scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Sador.
0: Thank you, Rural Scoop listeners, for tuning in today for a special episode highlighting a member of the Arizona Rural Schools Association. Dr. Howard Carlson is the superintendent of the Wickenburg Unified School District here in Arizona, as well as a published author, and he has done beneficial work in the area of educational leadership. Howard, are you ready to give us the scoop? I'm ready. Great. Well, before we get started, can you give the listeners a bit of information about you and your background?
1: Uh, sure, Melissa. Um, I've been a superintendent for a little over fifteen years in the states of Washington, Minnesota, and Arizona. Uh, I've worked in districts from a thousand up to twenty thousand, but uh, most of the time has been spent in rural districts, and so. I really like that uh, that generalist approach as compared to being a specialist, so you know for me, role is best.
0: I know that you've written a couple of books, and we'll talk more about both of those as we go through our interview. What prompted you to share your thoughts with other superintendents?
1: well uh, in, in writing the first book that I wrote uh, I had been a superintendent for a little while. And one of the things I noticed was that there were a few resources out there for newer superintendents. And I thought it sure would be nice to have a a book or resource that people could use to be able to understand some of the nuances, how to get started. uh, Some of the things that, you know, you might have to consider as you move through the job. And so um, I was in uh, Minnesota at the time and I, Talked to a colleague of mine who was a college professor, and uh, said, "Hey, you know, I've got this idea. Why don't we write this book?" And he had written books before, so we started down that path and and uh, completed that first book. Uh, and from there, uh, that book was picked up by a number of the superintendent certification programs across the United States, and and has helped a number of new superintendents. But uh, generally, I think for me, it's about helping others and uh, passing on wisdom that I glean from other leaders. Uh, and ultimately, for me, I would say that writing is, is cathartic and the superintendency, you know, I think we need outlets and uh, writing has been an outlet for me. And it's what I do on Saturday and Sunday mornings before the kids get up. So I, uh, I always enjoy, you know, spending some time on the computer and getting some of those thoughts out of my head.
0: And and the book that you're referring to Howard is called so now you're the superintendent and it was John Eller and you that wrote that book And I don't know if you knew this But when I first was hired as a superintendent, that was the first book I bought and it was so helpful to be able to go through almost a a recipe card a template to be able to Frame my own thinking about what do I not know that I need to be thinking about so It was a very helpful book
1: I, I appreciate that. And it's, uh, it's something that uh, I even return to. And uh, I'm sure, you know, many superintendents go back to resources like that. It helps us to, you know, to be able to go back and, and refine our thinking on different issues and, and uh, then move forward. So, no, I appreciate that.
0: Well, your latest book is called Accelerated Wisdom, 50 Practical Insights for Today's Superintendent. Can you give us a couple of your favorite ideas from that book?
1: A couple of ideas. Um, I, I think what I would start with, Melissa, is uh, the concept of uh, promoting ideas and changes. Uh, one of the things that, that I have learned and that I have gleaned over time from others is that it's important not only to understand the, the reasons for change and transformation, but also to tie that together with emotion. And uh, Dan and Chip Heath speak to that piece uh, in a couple of their books and in an article uh, called, I'm trying to remember, it's Teaching That Sticks. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea is that uh, when you look at change, you need to understand the research and Follow those steps and processes, but if you don't ever tie that back to uh, an emotional component or an emotional level, then ultimately it won't be sustainable. So that is one of the areas that I speak to in the book, and I I really like because I, I find that for me it has made a big difference, and in others that I've worked with, it is something that you know we uh, we find that people don't always think about. So it has helped them to to be able to rethink that, that change process. Um, I would say the, the other area that I would identify is uh, the potholes and pitfalls uh, component of, I think it's chapter seven. And basically what that is is speaking to research related to uh, why superintendents fail and things that they can do to be more successful Ultimately, there are a lot of different components that we face in our jobs. And if we can uh, understand the research and try to determine how we can apply that research in the work that we do each and every day, I think that that helps us ultimately to be successful and to navigate the the waters that we face as superintendents.
0: One of the questions that I wanted to make sure that I touched on with you was that component of or the concept of change and you indicated that tying change and the need for change into an emotion based platform is vital to the success of the of the change that's being asked of your followers can you give us an example of how you've taken the tenants that you wrote about in the book and have seen it work in action
1: uh sure. I, I think again, you know, the idea there is that uh, uh you have to tie the research together with the the emotional component. And so when you look at um the emotion, the the goal there is to hit somebody at a different level than um what just the uh you know the research might show them or you know the uh, the different components of the the change process, <laughs> excuse me, so you know an example for me would be when we um implemented a uh, a new curriculum at the high school level, uh, one of the reasons behind that was to speak to the fact that sixty percent of our kids were going on to college and were taking remedial courses when they when they got to college, and so we were showing research and uh, that type of thing as to and data as to why you would need to make that change. Mm -hmm. And so that would fall into what I call the 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 levers of change. And those levers of change come from Gardner's work, Howard Gardner. Yes. Uh, But to tie in the emotional component, what we did was we went a step further to try to really solidify the idea. And how we did that was to then take that concept of the fact that students were taking remedial classes and uh, discuss the the fact that college is expensive and everybody could understand that college costs are rising uh, and that is a real burden on kids. And so ultimately, if they could start to see that um, by, putting in place the new curriculum that created a change in terms of the uh, remedial courses that were taken, mm-hmm. then in the end, they would save money. They would, uh, they would be able to uh, save on their college education. And so adding that emotional component about the cost of college and how that felt for everybody involved, that kind of solidified that process and enabled us to, to put the, uh, Curriculum in place and have people sustain it.
0: You've broken down the book into seven chapters that include such topics as organizational uh, platforms, working with a school board. Uh, what was the hardest chapter for you to write?
1: Hmm, I, I would say uh, chapter seven, Living the Superintendency, was probably the, the hardest chapter for me to write. And I would say that, Melissa, because you know, we we receive training on leadership and change and uh, subjects like that, but we rarely receive any training regarding our fit for the job, how we determine whether we are fit for the job or that district or the importance of life balance and health right. uh, components like that. And these are pieces uh, that, you know, we really need to, to think through uh, and yet we don't understand them until we sit in the chair in the superintendent's chair so you know i i feel like uh <clears throat> that was probably the hardest chapter because again there's no guide for that it's based on the experience and wisdom that we pick up over the years
0: and and two of the things that are in chapter seven that i really connected with number one was having a mentor and how to best select that mentor and then you've mentioned just now, that life balance and making sure that you're doing things as simple as getting enough rest. (laughs) So those were things that that you're right. They're not in a textbook, but boy, do they make a difference in how successful you are as a superintendent, especially in a rural area where you may may be wearing multiple hats.
1: I completely agree. I completely agree in it. And uh, it's important to understand those pieces if ultimately we're going to be successful. So No, that that would be very true.
0: As a superintendent, what is the area or areas that you or others around you tend to struggle with most often that you've addressed in the book?
1: You know, Melissa, I would say that uh, politics is probably the the area where most superintendents and individuals that I'm aware of uh, tend to struggle. You know, we serve multiple constituencies uh, and those those different individuals rarely see eye to eye. Uh, and we all know that if we've been in the superintendency. Right. So, you know, we have to be wise in how we handle each and every situation. And uh, along with that, I speak in the book to the fact that leadership is situational. And uh, we oftentimes want to make different uh, decisions, different things we do, black and white. But we have to understand that in reality, most of leadership is gray and so uh, because it's gray and because we're working in that political environment we need to put in place tools that will enable us to to navigate you know those situations and ultimately be able to uh, work with the different constituencies and groups that that we're faced with and uh, you know bring them on board with the different things that we're doing
0: And, you know, Howard, I love that you devoted a chapter on advocacy as an educational leader. Um, What are some of the things that rural leaders in particular need to be aware of when they set out to become a voice for their students in their community?
1: You know, I would say that um, it's probably first uh, not about who you know, but rather who knows you and your district. So it's important to make sure that your legislator and others in the political realm know you. And how that comes about, I believe, is if you can start by developing a very uh, clean and clear one-page district profile that explains who you are, uh, some of the different things that your district does, maybe the size of the district, the complexities of the district, uh, some of the uh, unique nuances of the district. Mm -hmm. What that does is provides an opportunity for that legislator to be able to go back and refer to that information. And so uh, by doing that, they start to know you, which is, again, very, very important. Once you've kind of been through that process, then I think it's important to find ways to keep your legislator informed. Let them know how you feel about a certain topic. Also, let them know that you're there to to help them and uh, to assist them as they might need it. One of the things we do in our district is we send out a quarterly newsletter or uh, or letter called Champions for Children that go mm-hmm. to our legislators and other key leaders,
0: mm, and it just
1: idea. provides some very uh, simple information about our district and things that are going on, and that, that's one way to keep people engaged.
0: And then if they want more information about what you're doing, they can follow up with you directly. That's correct. That's a great idea. In the book, you speak about the tyranny of the urgent and how it can shift our focus from what is important. How do you recommend superintendents stay on track?
1: Well, one way I do that is uh, I have a couple of uh, student self-portraits that are sitting directly across from my desk. So if I get up to leave, um, or if I look up from my desk, I see those self-portraits of those students, and it brings me back, regardless of what's going on, the challenges, the pressures, the issues that I'm facing, it brings me back to why I do what I do. And so, again, if I look look up from the desk, if I uh, um, am to walk out of my office, that. That set of pictures is a focus for me, and my recommendation is that superintendents have something like that—something that, something that uh, visually brings them back to the focus of what they do, so that they can remember the the mission behind, you know, their their work and be tied to that in everything they do.
0: So it reconnects them with their why. Why are they there?
1: That's absolutely right, and I think we we all need that because you know, with the tyranny, the urgent, we, uh, you know, we get sidetracked, we get pulled down different paths. And there's always tons of things that we have to to be doing. And we need some way to continue to bring us back. And I find that visual reminders are what work best in that regard to, to bring us back to our focus.
0: And, you know, one of the things that you do a very good job at pointing out is that there's the managerial part of the work, and you need to be organized and on point and on time for those things. But then there's also the art of leadership, which is about those intangibles. It's about being uh, a visionary and a motivator and uh, trying to keep track of both of those things. And the tyranny of the urgent tends to sway us back to the manager side rather than the visionary.
1: That's correct, absolutely, I completely agree with that.
0: Howard, you have a chapter on hiring, supervising, and mentoring employees. And as I know you're aware, we have a crisis right now in Arizona with teacher recruitment and retention. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think um, as rural superintendents, we have a special challenge. And uh, that challenge is that not only are we fighting the uh, recruitment battle but it's even harder for us because of our location and our size so on and so forth so for me um, it's important to figure out how do we find individuals that fit our setting or want to be in our setting and you know it's it's important to focus on that so that we have folks that will come in and stay rather not individuals that come in one year and then they're out so i think that's important I also believe that it's important to find ways to be more attractive than other employment options. Uh, One of the ways we're doing that, we just this last week at the board level adopted a four day week for next year. Oh, wow. And I think that, uh, yeah, and I think that helps because it provides um, an advantage for us over other employers and uh, in some locations, other schools. So I I think that's a, a good way to go. And along with that, we will. Uh, offer a reduced um, childcare option for uh, for parents that work in our district, for not parents, but for teachers and staff that work in our district. Uh, so basically, a teacher can receive 50% off for both the childcare and the preschool costs that they would typically pay. And so, again, I think, you know, finding ways to be more attractive as, uh, rural school districts is important. And then finally, I would say, um, thinking through the millennial teacher and their desires, making sure that we are staying ahead of, of that curve. As an example, we provide remote access to all the teachers' computer files mm-hmm. so that ultimately they can work from home or from France or wherever they're at <laughs> and be able to gain access to their, uh, their technology or their, their files in the district, and I think it's, it's shifting to, to meet the demands of that new generation that, that will help. So I think all of those uh, items combined are the types of things we need to do in rural districts to recruit and retain.
0: Now, you broke principal induction down into a circuit training type platform in your in your book. Um, Howard, how would you suggest training a rural administrator who may have some challenges with the multiple hats that we referred to earlier?
1: You know, I think uh, in terms of the training process, the, the goal would be to condense down the number of people involved in the training and uh, maybe lengthen the induction time period so that you know, ultimately you have, uh, you know, a greater opportunity for success there because you don't have as many people working in your district. But uh, in terms of the individual administrator themselves, I think that um, beyond some of the traditional induction pieces, I think that it's important to make sure they understand um, the local context. Uh, I, I believe in rural districts, we really need to understand our local context, uh, what the politics are, um, you know, uh, how the different organizations run, how information flows, so on and so forth. Because where I see new administrators have the greatest challenge in our rural districts is they come in and may not understand those nuances. And ultimately they make too many changes too fast or they didn't uh, follow the communication protocols that they should have followed. Mm-hmm. And ultimately they have trouble. So I think if we can focus on those kinds of pieces in the rural setting for those new administrators, that makes a difference.
0: And following along those same lines, Howard, in your opinion, based upon your writings and your experience, what makes for a successful rural superintendent?
1: You know, I would start with the fact that they need to be a generalist, not a specialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when uh, and I think I mentioned earlier, I've worked in districts from 1,000 to 20,000 kids. And uh, when I was in a 20,000 student district, I had to be a specialist. In a rural district, you have to be a generalist. You have to know all the different jobs and have a very broad base of knowledge and understanding. So I think that's that's one key piece to being a successful superintendent. Um, you also have enough need to have enough knowledge. And uh, wisdom to be able to wear those multiple hats. So you know you you have to be able to put yourself in the various positions and understand the nuances of those different positions and duties so that ultimately you can be successful as as you uh, move forward with the the superintendency. and I, I would say that the final thing for me is that, uh, rural superintendents have to be super creative problem solvers. You know, they, sure. they are faced with, so, yeah, it, it is because they're faced with so many varied um, situations and ultimately they have to have the ability to really reflect and think through how they're going to address those, those items. But I also would say that's why the rural superintendency is so motivating. I believe, uh, you know it takes a large toolbox and it keeps you um, engaged on multiple levels rather than being in one area Um, and so for me that's always been very compelling that is what has drawn me back to the rural area as a superintendent
0: and if i could follow up on that when when you first got into a rural superintendency did you set yourself up with a mentor how did that process look for you
1: you know, um, yes, I did. Uh, and in fact, um, I was blessed to work under a, uh, a superintendent who had been in the position for 18 years. Hmm. And I moved through the the different seats from teacher through the superintendency in, in the district. And this individual worked with me over a number of years and continues to work with me. In fact, there's uh, um, one component in the book where I talk about uh, – making sure that you don't major in the minors. Yes. Well, that was one of his things. And the idea there was that uh, make sure that you're, you're focusing on the most important things, not looking at multiple things and, again, drawing your attention away from that which needs to be accomplished. And so, uh, yes, I, I have uh, – or I started out with um, a really good mentor. Dale Knott was his name. Um, But I will tell you, I continue to seek out um, colleagues and and mentors as I go. Um, Right now, I have a leadership mentor uh, who is a neighbor of mine and actually had been the Secretary of the Interior under President Reagan, and uh, very interesting to meet with him. uh, His name is Jim Watt, and he is driving me deeper as a leader uh, in terms of how you actually uh, hone your skills, how you become more wise in the things that you do, so on and so forth. So for me, mentorship isn't about that first job. It's about a lifelong learning type of an approach and making sure that we always are looking to, uh, to kind of go to the next level in our job.
0: You conclude your book, Howard, with a paragraph from Teddy Roosevelt's speech, Citizens in a Republic. What's the significance of that paragraph for educational leaders?
1: You know, I would say uh, the significance is about the fact that as superintendents, we're going to face criticism. That that goes with the territory, and, and we need to be prepared for that. But uh, what I was after there is to help us understand that we must remember that superintendents are brave souls, and uh, we're willing to stand in the arena, as uh, President Roosevelt described, for our kids and to do what's right. And I think that it's important to go back to things like that, to remember again, why we do what we do. And uh, when we're in the throes of criticism, to to understand that uh, there are those out there that will try to pull you down or to criticize the work you're doing. But you're in that arena and you're there for a reason. Uh, The board has uh, felt comfortable in putting you there. And ultimately you are leading a school district of children and they're counting on you. And so I I wanted to make sure that, that I pointed that out and made sure that people understood that uh, um, they are brave and, you know, they, they are meant to be in that arena. That's, that's who they are. And I think it's, it's good to wake up every morning knowing that, you know, we're doing noble work and we should never forget that fact that again, you know, we're, we're in that arena and um, we're there for the proper reason.
0: So. That's a great connection. Howard, what ideas do you have for other superintendents who desire to write and share their wisdom as you have in this book?
1: You know, I, I would say uh, if, if an individual is interested in writing or the writing process, it's good to start out writing articles. I've written a number of articles for the AASA uh, Publication School Administrator, mm-hmm. and uh, one can write articles. They can submit those articles, uh, attempt to get those articles published, and I think that's a good start to see, you know, if we like what we're doing and if if writing is something that, that we enjoy. From there, if they, they really enjoy writing, then they can um, start to collect ideas, think about uh, topics or ideas that they'd like to write on, and ultimately put together a proposal for a publisher. And that's how this process works, is that you design a proposal, you go to the publisher's web- website, It uh, it speaks to uh, the steps that you need to to follow. You put that proposal together, submit it, and then if they are interested in the concept, they will contact you. They will contract you, and then you jump into the writing process from there.
0: Do you have another book on the horizon?
1: I don't at this time.
0: Is that a possibility?
1: It is a possibility. I uh, um, you know I've thought about a number of different topics from. Uh, our interaction with our school boards to uh, trying to understand what the next generation of leadership is going to look like. You know, I think we're in a changing um, environment and education is going to look different, not only because of the impact of technology, but um, ongoing regulation and, uh, and funding. And so, you know, what what's it going to take to be a Uh, a leader in that environment. And so, I don't know, a couple of thoughts, but uh, nothing that I've solidified at this time.
0: Howard, if anybody wants more information on what we talked about today, how can they get in touch with you?
1: Well, um, my uh, personal email is hcarlsonthesoup at gmail.com. So that's the s-u-p-t at com. They could email me and I would love to, uh, interact with others. That's, that's something I enjoy. Um, another way for them to, uh, be in touch with me or to connect is, uh, through a blog I write for superintendents, And, uh, that can be found at com. And, uh, as a part of that, I put out a, um, a newsletter every couple of weeks, or uh, you know, kind of outline a topic in the blog, and so that is uh, that's another way to stay in touch.
0: You have a Twitter as well. What's your handle on Twitter?
1: Uh, it's H Carlson two.
0: Well, Howard, thank you so much for being involved with the podcast today. I want to let all the rural scoop listeners know that Howard's contact information will be available in the show notes so you can check that out at the Arizona Rural School Association website at azruralschools.org and get more detailed information on how to get in touch with them. Thanks again Howard for talking with me.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.